0: Hello there to all my 101 History uh, Podcast uh, listeners. Um, happy Sunday to all of you. Uh, despite the, what do you call it, um, intense heat outside, I hope every one of you are staying safe. Um, and it will be, um, when the time comes, it'll be great to know when this heat goes away. Uh, it's been too hot for some time, but um, and it's just, uh, what do you call it, miserable. I hate to use that word, but uh, but when it gets hot like this, when you have uh, temperatures or uh, heat index temperature of over 100 degrees, it's not fun to be outside for a long period of time. But thank heavens, um, I'm inside and uh, where it's a little bit nicer and the air conditioner's on. Uh, but to think there was a time when there was no such thing as an air conditioner. After all, my dad once told me that he was probably about um, between maybe the age of 10 and 12 when he got, when his family first got an AC unit. And uh, to think that when our forefathers were living, there was no such thing as a modern day AC. If it was hot outside, uh, they obviously did whatever they could to uh, modify the problem, but obviously, they would have probably given anything in the world to have had a modern-day convenience like this one that is an actual AC. Well, anyways, uh, we are um, still talking about Through the Perilous Fight, From the Burning of Washington to the Star-Spangled Banner, The Six Weeks That Saved the Nation, written by Steve Vogel. Uh, Friday night, I remember talking about James Madison's um, cabinet, interesting group of men. You have some who are bright, and then you got one like Secretary of War John Armstrong, who is a very manipulative and deceiving man who really had no business being in the cabinet, but yet Madison had no other choice uh, to bring him along in order to even out the geographical, um, what do you call it, the geographical um, proportion of his cabinet. In other words, one region wasn't favoring um, the other, or overpowering the other, I should say. But uh, we are now really getting into the um, most essential parts to this book, and not everything can be told at once in terms of everything that's essential, but we are starting to make our way into that uh, realm. So... The British uh, are starting to make their way into the Chesapeake Bay region, or should I say the, the coastline of the United States, really by 1813. So, yes, the, the answer to this question is, is uh, when did the British begin navigating the Chesapeake Bay in terms of waging um, terror on the United States? That's That answer is right there, as early as 1813. Now, who in particular on the British side is in charge of commanding the Chesapeake campaign? I didn't know anything about this fellow until I started reading uh, the book uh, a couple of months back. His name is, his name is Sir, George, Sir George Coburn. Now, if you pronounce his name, it's spelled C-O-C-K-B-U-R-N, Cockburn. But to the British, it is Coburn. It's a silent E. Uh, but he is also referred to as Rear Admiral George Coburn. So, Admiral, does anybody know what that rank is, pertains to? The Navy. And of course, when anyone in terms of uh, Sir George Coburn, that means that he has obviously been knighted uh, from, the, from the monarchy. So, who is George Coburn? I did a little research on him. He was born in the year 1772, and what's interesting about 1772 is not so much the year, but when he's born, who is England at hostilities with? The 13 colonies, who are obviously wanting to uh, make uh, do away with being a part of the British Empire. Well, Sir George Coburn, well, before he becomes Sir Sir George Coburn, he is educated at the Royal Navigational School. He joins the Royal Navy in March of 1781, and he's not even 10 years of age. But, obviously, somebody in his family sees to it that um, he's probably got what it takes to be on the high seas. So, you know, it's easy in today's time when one wants to um, go to the military, be a part of the military, it's one thing, but to go to the United States Naval Academy, you obviously have to uh, get approval or uh, you have to go through your local congressmen uh, for that. Uh, take, for example, uh, Virginia, which has uh, 13 um, electoral votes, there's 11 congressional districts. So that means two people from each of the eleven congressional districts um, go to the Naval Academy. So that means about uh, 22 um, men and women uh, from our from the state of Virginia uh, would go. So basically, going to the Royal Navigational School might as well have been like the equivalent of attending the United States Naval Academy for George Coburn. Well, he works his way up the ladder. And when he joins the Royal Navy in March of 1781, he joins as a captain's servant. Okay, so basically he is working below the captain. This is like an apprenticeship of sorts. He's probably learning all the ins and outs of, of not just so much what it's like to be a servant, but how he can work his way up the ladder in terms of rank status as he gets older. So really between 1781 and 1794, he serves in various rank levels among... Roughly 11 ships. His rank titles range from lieutenant to captain during this time. Well, to have been under uh, 11, been working under 11 different um, ships, not just ships, but think of how many officers high above him he has worked under. He has pretty much seen the whole nine yards during this time. And I think this is a good thing because he's working with not just so much with different people, he's perhaps um, learning different leadership skills among uh, captains and uh, people above him who are who have higher seniority. It, it's good for that because if you stay the, the entire time on one ship, you're really not going to know how to transition, so forth. But, um, but by the time the uh, War of 1812 comes around, he is about forty years of age, and that's when he is promoted to Rear Admiral. So he's not officially an Admiral, Admiral, but he is a Rear, meaning probably one rank below. Well, by 1813, Admiral, or I should say Rear Admiral George Coburn, begins to wage his campaign of terror along the Chesapeake Bay. Now, uh, does anybody know what uh, Chesapeake means? I learned this uh, some years back, and I've remembered it ever since. The Indians who inhabited coastal Virginia gave the name of the region the Chesapeake Bay. Chesapeake, in terms of Algonquian language, means abundance of shellfish. So, as for Rear Admiral George Coburn... Knowing what we know now, by 1813, he begins to wage this campaign of terror along the Chesapeake Bay. He destroys a village, um, in a coastal village in Maryland known as haver de Gras. and he also ravages Hampton, Virginia. He plunders the Virginia shoreline to torching farms in Maryland. Why is he doing all this? Well... I don't know if I should say it now, but what I do know is this. 1813, we're already into the second year of this war. As mentioned from a previous podcast, England did not really want to go to war with the United States. We declared war on England because of their, um, what do you call it, actions, um towards us on the high seas for example we they were engaging in impressment that is capturing our sailors and forcing them against their own will to fight for uh, the mother country of course we are already free from england from the american revolution but still we have you all have to remember that england is still holding a lot of grudges on us and the best way for them to get revenge on us is to make our lives miserable on the high seas And it also doesn't help, too, that um, England is willing to allow Indians along that Northwest Territory uh, frontier of Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, Wisconsin to take up arms with them uh, to prevent any kind of uh, further Western settlement into that uh, area. Well, is Rear Admiral George Coburn the most hated and feared of all men in the United States? The answer is yes. Many in the newspapers refer to him as a notorious barbarian. He is even referred to as the equivalent of of Attila the Hun. The papers label him as the great bandit. He basically, um, his job is to... um, spread fear, and not just to spread fear, but to do whatever it takes to catch people off guard. So basically, one of his missions was not only to just spread the fear, but to leave nothing but destruction behind. And his ultimate goal will be to go about um, implementing an attack on American soil that is so grand that it could bring our country to a complete collapse. Scary to, to think, but it is, it is something that um, is just a matter of time before the inevitable does happen. Besides ransacking villages like Haver de Gras, Maryland, plundering the Virginia shoreline, what situation or rather I should say incident, best described Admiral Coburn's mission in spreading fear to Americans? The answer is the following. It was on August 3rd of 1814. Ad- Rear Admiral Coburn headed up, headed up a mission along the Yakamico River on Virginia's northern neck with 500 sailors and Royal Marines and 20 barges. And to make matters um, worse, or, or even in some cases, um, scary, this um, mission also included a special company of 120 colonial marines. Now, 120 colonial marines doesn't seem like a lot, but these marines were escaped slaves who, who came to the British From plantations in Virginia and Maryland. What can these escaped slaves do that would be a huge asset for Rear Admiral Coburn? They can tell him and his other uh, high-ranking officers and men below him where these families live along the shores of Virginia and Maryland. And not just where they live, but where they are in proximity to, say, another person's home, what valuable assets they have, this will give Admiral Coburn all the mission and and fire and desire to want to um, unleash further um, destruction to the point where people are left in chaos. And what what I read, and it does make sense, is that I was always led to believe that the, um, the families who lived on these homes had greater knowledge of where, uh, of where they were living in terms of their surroundings. It turns out that the servants who worked for them were smarter than they were. So it, it was one thing for them to escape, but once they escaped, they had everything to their advantage. So in other words, they were harboring the enemy, but they were harboring the enemy for all the right reasons. Where did this incident occur, uh, given that it was on Virginia's northern neck along the Iocomico River? It occurred in a little town known as Kinsale, Virginia. The British opened fire on the town, and the militia, whatever amount of men there were to compromise a militia, yes, they might have put up a fight, but once they ran out of ammunition, they were up a creek. So the militia were overwhelmed and pretty much ran for their own lives. The village of Kinsale was burned and roughly 30 homes were destroyed. 30 homes, you know, one would say that doesn't seem like a lot of homes, but think about it. 30 homes in one village along the Iokamako River, destroyed? That's a big deal. Everybody's livelihood is ruined. Valuables, assets are gone. and. Think about it. Not only are your assets within your home are gone, your livestock could have been destroyed too. So how are these people going to take care of themselves? It's not like they can just get in their car or even let alone, of course, there's no such thing as an automobile back then, but it's not like they can just get in their horse and buggy and go into town and pick up um, as many goods as there are possible to um, feed their families for the next uh, week. Basically, their livelihoods have been destroyed in a matter uh, within within a one-day time. Their livelihoods are destroyed. Um, not just the homes are destroyed, but the British captured five schooners with, hogs, with an unprecedented amount of what were known as hogsheads of tobacco. In other words, barrels of tobacco, five prisoners were taken, and a couple of horses. So think about it, five, five schooners, doesn't seem like a lot, but think about it. All 30 of those homes, they, those people, or I should say farmers, probably grew tobacco and probably were transporting all, all the tobacco in the town w- was on those schooners and other essential goods, too. So pretty much everyone's livelihood has been wiped out in a, in a, in a one-day time span. Well, what was significant about the early onset invasion of Chesapeake Bay, of the Chesapeake Bay uh, by the British forces? There, uh, the invasion was meant to force the United States to divert troops that were currently in Canada back south. So, in other words, we we're so concerned about Canada, we're so concerned about liberating the people from Canada who have ties to England, we have forgotten that the coast is an open uh, prey for outside attack, being that by the British. So yes, the British did succeed in invading uh, the northern neck of Virginia and the eastern shore of Maryland. This should serve now as a red flag to us to say, hey, we need to get some people prepared because who knows what's going to lie next. But remember something, too. It's not like we can just send an airplane to Canada or a couple of helicopters and bring people back. We don't have that kind of transportation yet, unfortunately. All right, now um, we're going to get to the nitty-grit of this um, session. Not that what I just said a moment ago was wasn't important. It was, but here is some more nitty gritty detail uh, to discuss. And then the name of the man I'm going to discuss is someone who's going to be talked a little bit more in some of the in some other podcast sessions down the road. But we're going um, to we're going to find out about him uh, right now. Who is John Stuart Skinner? Okay. Well, I can tell you this much right now about John Stewart Skinner. He was born in the year 1788. He is a child of the, um, whereas Francis Scott Key was a child of the um, American Revolution, uh, John Stuart Skinner is a child of the post American Revolution era. And given that he's born in 1788, he is born a year after the US Constitution was signed. he is um, He came from a well to do family on a plantation in southern maryland 's Calvert County. seems like a lot of people or famous Marylanders during this time come from calvert county and As I said from an earlier podcast, Calvert County was established by uh, Cecil Calvert, and his son Charles also had a very uh, prominent role and the the, uh, overall shaping of the county. And remember, uh, Maryland, when it was established, it was a haven for Catholic refugees who were uh, vigorously persecuted by uh, Protestants. So uh, what kind of interests does John Stuart Skinner have? His interests lie in agriculture and field sports. Well, when it comes to agriculture, his interest lies in plowing. And field sports, fox hunting. Does John Stuart Skinner, or should I say, do John Stuart Skinner and Francis Scott Key have something in common? Yes, they both studied law in Annapolis. And by the year 1809, Mr. Skinner starts practicing law as an attorney at the age of 21. That's uh, pretty remarkable unto itself. I also learned that in 1812, the same year that the United States declares war on England, Mr. Skinner marries a woman named Elizabeth G. Davies. She is the stepdaughter of Theodoric Bland, who is a very prominent individual in the state of Maryland. For starters, Mr. Theodoric Bland is a Maryland attorney, he is a statesman. He is a U.S. District Judge of the United States District Court for the District of Maryland to the Chancellor of Maryland. Well, you know, it's one thing to get married. But when you marry someone, especially out of Cal- when you're from Calvert County, you better make sure it, that you marry well. Because when you marry well think of how many connections you um, establish, not just from within the family you've married into, but for whom your in-laws have connections with as well. Well, how does John Stuart Skinner, get, besides being a successful lawyer, how does he go about getting um, into a prominent role for the War of 1812? Well, President James Madison made a smart move, even though, yes, I will admit this, that even though, yes, James Madison was probably not one of our best commanders in chief when it came to uh, warfare, he did make a smart move in appointing um, Mr. Um, Skinner um, to be the inspector of mail from Europe. This was um, the first of a handful of jobs for Mr. Skinner. Now, I want to ask you all this. There is no such thing as the United States Postal Service in 1812. So if you have mail coming from Europe, going into the United States, where does the mail arrive once it comes into the United States? The answer is Annapolis, The mail would come on British ships under a truce agreement. So, in other words, the flag that the ship would be coming on would be a white flag, which represented truce. In other words, truce means a peace agreement. Remember, folks, uh, ships just can't come in whenever they feel like it. Um, This isn't, um, you're not just traveling at your own leisure. People need to know what's coming in and out of the ports, because for all we know, if the sh- if a ship's not um, coming in under a truce flag, we don't know what to expect. We could almost uh, we could almost in- be anticipating um, an unexpected act of terrorism. So, um, what kind of responsibilities um, did Mr. Skinner have with being uh, the inspector? being the head inspector of mail, he had to oversee or ensure that America's transatlantic communications or the he had to oversee that our transatlantic communications were secure. In, in other words, like receiving and forwarding all ocean mail, furnishing vessels with necessary supplies, and most importantly, to preventing any hostilities from taking place under the truce flag. So think about it. He's being entrusted with a lot of powers. He might as well be like the equivalent of his own little, of his own version as being president. I mean, he's got to make sure that not just the people in Annapolis are safe, but in the outlying uh, communities as well. This is not a position he can be taking lightly. And do you blame him? No, not at all. Now, um, besides this position, what is the position that Mr. Skinner obtains that becomes even more essential? He becomes the United States designated prisoner of war agent. Now, He start as I said a moment ago he started out as, as an inspector of mail from Europe but in his second job was agent for prisoners of war Did Mr Skinner have regular contact with the British f- fleet most notably under the command of Rear Admiral George Coburn He does as a matter of fact, Mr. Skinner did have good relations with Ad, with Rear Admiral Coburn and other high-ranking British officers. And I'm sure some of you are probably thinking right now, how can Mr. Skinner have a good relationship with Admiral Coburn knowing that villages in Maryland and Virginia along the coastline have just been plundered? How can he still have relations with them? Well, you know... It, it, You know, it would be very tough on one hand, but at the same time, he is representing the United States government. He is probably the only person who has the courage to do the tasks before him, because I don't know of anybody else who would even be able to do what he does. It's like that saying goes, sometimes it takes a special person to handle a specific task before them. And I think the same could be said for Mr. Skinner. Well, I could tell you this right now. When Mr. Skinner w- w- was in Annapolis, he would climb up to the, co- the cupola of the state house where he would scan for enemy maneuvering. In other words, he would have to be on constant lookout for, sh- for any would-be enemy ships coming into uh, the Annapolis Harbor. He had to converse with British officers about sailing dates and destinations. So in other words, he's got to find out, hey, if, if any British ships are coming in, when are they going to be sailing out? And where are they going to be going? Are they going to be going elsewhere in the United States, say up north to Boston? Are they going to be going south to Charleston, South Carolina, or Savannah, Georgia, In other words, I need to know um, about these ships uh, because I need to ensure that others are going to be safe along the coast. I need to know what kind of goods are being transported. He also has to go about obtaining newspaper accounts on the location of ships. He also sends regular reports to the State Department with relevant military intelligence. So... The way I see it about Mr. Skinner is that he is pretty much like his own CIA um, informant person. Of course, there's no such thing as a CIA in the 19th century, but he might as well be working as a um, CIA informant who is doing what you call undercover intelligence, undercover operations. He's the one that's trying to um, get all the details there are possible To ensure the safety of our country. Well, here's an easy answer right here, but I'm going to ask it to you all. Is John Stuart Skinner the most qualified agent at this time to deal with the British in terms of military force? Yes. He is a veteran of many missions, especially negotiating prisoner exchanges. And I can tell you this right now, that... Because of his extensive background as an agent for prisoner of war affairs, it's going to be very useful in the la- in the later months of 1814, most notably around August and September, when America as a country is facing its darkest hour. And more of that information will come in another podcast session. But it's probably good to give you all a heads up now. Does Mr. Skinner know about Rear Admiral Coburn's fear tactics? Yes. By mid to late July in 1814, the British forces go as far as to burning a Maryland plantation in Prince Frederick. Believe it or not, that's where Mr. Skinner was born. Now, if I were in Mr. Skinner's shoes and knew that where I uh, was born was burned... It's not so much that where I was born got burned, but knowing that's where um, my family had its um, perhaps its uh, first home or its, its original origins along that part of uh, Maryland, and given that he was from southern Calvert County, yeah, I would be very um, upset and angry, but I guess I can ask you this question here next. Did Mr. Skinner hold any grudges against Admiral uh, Coburn, Rear Admiral Coburn? If he did, it wasn't to be shown. He wanted to be savvy. Well, I think that's going to help him out in the long run because if he really shows his anger now, it could backfire on him. You know, in in other words, Mr. Um, Skinner. If you think about it, he's kind of putting his own life on the line because nobody else is willing. It's not so much nobody else is willing. I don't think there are a whole lot of other people out there qualified to take on the role of being prisoner of, of prisoner of war agent uh, to be able to sit down and negotiate releases. It takes a lot of skill. Uh, He might as well be the equivalent of someone who can handle like a hostage crisis, a modern-day hostage crisis scenario. Here's a bonus question. I I didn't know this one, but I'm going to ask it, and I think it's worth sharing. What was the most powerful British warship to navigate through the Chesapeake Bay waters at this time? The most powerful British warship was known as the HMS Albion, which was commanded by none other than Rear Admiral George Coburn. It was a 74 gun frigate um, ship, weighed nearly 1,700 tons, had a crew of 620. I think it's safe to say that this ship is comprised of the best of the best. In other words, this, if you are a part of the British Navy, I think this is the ship you would want to be on. This is the one that you would also have had to work your way up the ladder to get to. And this ship is escorted by nearly two dozen brigs, sloops, and tenders. So, remember, it's one thing to be on a powerful warship like this one, but this warship is going to have to have... a. a at least a dozen or more smaller sized ships escorting it. Because if there is no protection around the ship, the ship itself could be vulnerable to um, outside attacks from just about anywhere. You could almost say in, in many ways that this um, that the H.M.S. Albion might as well have been like the equivalent of a modern day aircraft carrier. That's how big it was. Did Mr. Skinner ever make his way aboard the HMS Albion? Believe it or not, he did. He even found Ad- Rear Admiral Coburn to be a gracious host. Skinner himself was known to frequently dine with the, Admiral, with the Rear Admiral to discuss personal matters, primarily the comings and goings out of Annapolis. That is, the comings of, and goings of ships entering in and out. Well, 1814 is going to be one of our darkest years in the young republic's history. Whose young republic am I talking about, people? The United States. What, what else is going on in the world in 1814 that's going to um, be of um, significance? Well, Napoleon Bonaparte, who is the emperor of France, his abdication takes place in April. It ends two decades of tension within Europe, most notably among the British and the French. How does this impact the United States? Well, you know, back when George Washington was president, when hostilities between Britain and France really take their uh, shape and size... The United States is kind of left in the middle. There are those who want the US to side with England, most notably John Adams and Alexander Hamilton. Then you have those who want President Washington to side with the French, most notably Thomas Jefferson. George Washington takes a stance known as neutrality. He's not going to put this young country in a bad and a vulnerable position. Because if we side with one country, his biggest fear is knowing that we're going to um have what he call it bad relations with the other. So he keeps us out of the war out of the conflict, which was a very smart thing for its time. but as time goes along and and when Washington no longer becomes is no longer president and you have uh, new administrators or administrations like that of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, Newer chal- new challenges are going to come along and, and will either make or break for what would lie ahead down the road, especially when James Madison becomes president and knowing we're at war with England. So the bottom line is this, is that um, the tension between England and France just didn't happen overnight. The tension had been going on even after the american revolutionary war ended but to make matter on one hand yes it was good that we weren't involved in their conflict but to make matters worse once we started making our way out on the high waters who makes our life miserable britain who's not just impressing sailors on our end but by cutting off trade with france and perhaps with the rest of the world and the the british the objective of the british is to punish america for its unnecessary treachery most notably in canada in other words we are going britain does not like the fact that we have invaded a country of theirs who had nothing to do with um, acts of impressment but they feel that we invaded Canada, obviously, for all the wrong reasons. We thought we were doing the Canadians a favor by liberating them, but it turns out that, that everyone in Canada likes being loyal to England. It's bad enough that uh, Britain wants to punish us for unnecessary treachery in Canada, but they really would like to punish us south of the border, right on U.S. soil. Is the American experiment of democracy in danger come 1814? Uh, Yes. There are a lot of reasons why. Military forces are very thin. We're not evenly spread out. We've got everybody in Canada. The economy is in bad shape. And, And the American people are very, very bitterly divided by the war, even into its third year. Now, as I mentioned from Friday's podcast, yes, we have scored some good victories, like on Lake Erie, and we have also um, eliminated Tecumseh, the Indian prophet who um, led a mass confederacy of Indians who wanted to take up arms with the British in um, eliminating the American expansion on the Northwest Territory frontier. We got uh, Detroit back, or shall I say in the Michigan Territory, we were able to regain all of that territory. And while all that's great, it's not enough to convince the American people as a whole that this is a war worth fighting for. True or false, uh, were there peace negotiations going on overseas between the United States States and British in terms of ministers from both countries? Believe it or not, the answer is true. Uh, I can tell you this much right now. uh, of Some of the, uh, a couple of United States ministers who were over in in a Flemish city of Ghent, which is in Russia, some uh, noteworthy men like John Quincy Adams, who is the son of John Adams, and Mr. Henry Clay. Do these peace negotiations go well? I hate to. I would like to say yes, but no. Even Rear Admiral Coburn has asked John Skinner what he thinks of the American response in terms of negotiations. All Mr. Skinner can tell him is that I haven't gotten a word back. This is an actual uh, quote from Rear Admiral Coburn to Mr. Skinner. I believe, Mr. Skinner, that Mr. Madison will have to put on his armor and fight it out, Coburn said. I see nothing else left. That's a pretty powerful statement right there. How do I interpret this? This is what I think about it. Mr. Madison is going to need to... this is, this is my uh, interpretation of it, but I, do, but I know for a fact it's true. Mr. Madison is going to need to grow some balls. And what I mean is he's going to need to um, step up and be more like a man about this and stop doing all these bluffs. In other words, I'm declaring war on you because you're impressing our men, and by my declaring war on you as a result of your actions, I could probably see to it that you all would find a way to stop the impressing doesn't work like that. Not when you're facing the mightiest empire in the world who can do whatever it wants on the high seas, even though we may think it's wrong. The fact that they are still the mightiest empire on the high seas, it puts us at a huge disadvantage. Well, as I said, yes, Mr. Madison is going to need to grow some balls and, yes, get his dysfunctional cabinet together. How so? Because he's going to have to do whatever it takes to get his cabinet, especially that, um, what do called call it, unstable Secretary of War John Armstrong to go about fortifying all of Washington. For Rear Admiral George uh, Coburn, war is going to be the only way out, fighting it out on the battlefields or on the high seas. To him... This, would, this will separate boys from men. Peace talks are meaningless to Rear Admiral Coburn, especially as President Madison himself has already dug himself a deep hole. I personally do believe that James Madison has dug himself a bad hole. I mean, it's bad enough that the American people don't really support this war, that it was voted on primarily on party lines, But the fact that um, James Madison has sent a large uh, army, not just north into Canada, convinced that he can liberate the Canadian people from the mightiest empire in the world, but he has deliberately left the capital, while it is a wilderness, he has left the capital vulnerable. And he's already seen firsthand now what has happened along the coasts of um, Maryland and Virginia. And think about this, folks. Annapolis is not far from uh, Washington, D.C. Neither is Baltimore. Neither is Alexandria or Georgetown. And these are all places that are more popular for many people to want to live in versus Washington, D.C. But the fact is, James Madison is allowing Washington, D.C. now to become a sitting duck. Are things going to get any better? Who knows? We'll have to find out in the next podcast session. But I can tell you this. Many in his cabinet, especially that Secretary of War, John Armstrong, he's totally convinced that Washington would never be attacked. Why? Because there's really not a whole lot in Washington to want to plunder. Yes, there may be about 900 some scattered buildings, but there's just not anything there that could be considered trophy status. He's convinced that they'll attack Baltimore or Annapolis because there's a greater population. On one hand, he could be right, but just because there's a greater population in one major city over the other, it doesn't mean that the inevitable will happen to the place that has a larger population. Well, folks, uh, we have uh, covered a lot of ground tonight. And I, I've said this before and I'll say this again. Yes, we oftentimes we get told that, oh, uh, an invasion took place and this is why we went to war. Yes, we get told some of the 101 facts and we're led to believe it. But what we do, but what we tend to forget is that this war, not just so much being America's forgotten war, has a lot of twists and turns. There are people who we didn't expect would have prominent roles in in helping our country regain its stronghold as a result of this war. Before I even read this book, I had no idea who John Stuart Skinner was. I never even heard his name. But now I know that he was technically America's first um, agent when it came to uh, prisoner of war affairs. He was also our first U.S. mail inspector. You know, think about this. Somebody's got to inspect the mail. I mean, it's not just him. He's got to be the one to initiate all the comings and goings of, of boats coming in, their schedules. You know, think about it. Boats just can't come and go as they want to. There has to be a coordination schedule. There has to be uh, some form of structure to ensure the safety of our coast. And I'm sure some of you are thinking right now, why couldn't this guy have been president? Yeah. You think about it. I mean, he's, he, um, he knows his stuff, and we're going to also find out later on down the road in another podcast how he and Francis Scott Key play a vital role, um, especially right after um, the inevitable happens, or shall I say the unthinkable happens in Washington, D.C. Well, um, thank you for tuning in tonight, and I will uh, look forward to coming back on the air here soon. Stay safe.